welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. So today we're doing something new. Yes. We're focusing on a piece of our own authorship, or in this case, a piece My own of authorship. your authorship. Yeah. Um, We've decided that, well, I shouldn't say we decided. It just occurred to me the other day, everybody else uses their podcast to pimp their own shit, uh, and we should too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I put that in the most attractive possible way. That's right. Uh, but, you know... JF and I both write things from time to time, publish things, uh, and it would be nice to put a spotlight on them every now and then. And I just published something. The book that it's a part of is coming out this month. Right. Has come out, I think, already. Although Phil and I are both Canadian, we're not so stricken with false modesty that we feel we're above hawking our own wares. But this is a fantastic piece. I'm so glad that we're doing this because it kind of ties in a bunch of themes that have been floating in our whatever it is we're doing here since the beginning. And speaking of our wares, I just wanted to mention that I linked some notes or a little kind of mini essay I wrote in the show notes for the Hyperstition show, which in our present time stream just came out yesterday. But by the time this show comes out, it'll have been a few weeks. But there. Notes I wrote for the seminar that Phil and I were going to uh, lead together. They're notes on the refrain chapter from A Thousand Plateaus. So you Deleuzians out there, I'd love to hear your impressions on my interpretation of the refrain and how it connects with hyperstition. I thought it was a nifty little piece of writing. There's a couple of things in there that I'm sure will come up again, but I would have liked to get into. It's so funny how (laughs) we pick a topic and we both prepare and... You know, by the end, we've barely scratched the surface. And I've noticed that there's been a lot of people on Twitter commenting on how excited they are about the fact that we're talking about hyperstition. But I feel like we didn't go as deep as we could have into it. And I'm sure it'll come up again. So I'm not worried about that. But this was just a way for me to, like, offload some of the stuff that I would have liked to discuss so that it's out there and we can it can come up again and we can make references to it or whatever. So... You know, that little essaylet is a perfect example of a sort of thing that we can put in the newsletter mm-hmm. that will be a Patreon bonus when we get our Patreon up and running, that's, which I hope is soon. That's a good point, yeah. Speaking about flogging our wares. Right. So we're giving away some freebies now to whet your appetite for the Patreon, which will arrive in the new year at some point. First taste is free. Yeah. But uh, today we're not discussing the my shit. We're discussing your shit. So it's a chapter from a new book. What's the book? It's called The Routledge Companion to Popular Music Analysis, Expanding Approaches. And it's an academic book. It's a collection of essays by various musicologists and music theorists, music scholars, who are trying to think of ways to adopt techniques of music analysis that were developed to deal with the notated repertories of particularly the Western art music tradition trying to think of ways that those analytical techniques or more generally the kind of analytical mindset can 
apply to pop music, which for the most part has developed outside of notation. It's not primarily a notated music. And likewise, the academic discourses of popular music have tended to, not always, but tended to avoid music analysis. You're much more likely to find sociological analysis of uh, the kind of people listening to a given sort of music, or you'll find literary analysis of the lyrics, like, for example, I think it's Christopher Ricks wrote a book of poetic interpretation of Bob Dylan's lyrics. That would be another very typical approach in pop music criticism. But you don't seem to see a lot of, again, all exceptions duly noted, you don't see, relatively speaking, a whole lot of music analysis where people are really kind of getting into the X's and O's, talking about how when we notate this music, what kind of harmonies and formal structures and rhythmic structures and so on, what can we say about those things once we notate them? And so my essay, which is a piece called Analysis as... Oh, wait a minute, shit, I don't even remember the <laughs> title of my own piece. Called a style as, it's called Style as Analysis. Um, actually thinks about those issues mm-hmm. on a somewhat more, I don't know, abstract level, I guess, as is my want. Well, you do a tremendous lot for a short essay. There's a lot in there, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just a fantastic synthesis of... I I saw three moves in there. Hmm. Do you want to start with my kind of summary of it? It'll be a layman's summary, so it might be helpful to people. That that would be very helpful. And then you can correct me or expand or whatever. (laughs) I I, I am much happier to have you summarize it than to have me to summarize it. Yeah. Authors always do a really bad job of summarizing their own work. Yeah. Right, exactly. Bust with it. (laughs) So are there three sections? The map and the territory? (laughs) I don't even remember. Abracadabra. Abracadabra and stylus analysis. Yeah, so I'm right. There are three moves, three little. Oh, and then and then air guitar, which is the last section. Right, which is where you bring it all together. The big moves you're making. So you start off by talking about how, just exactly what you just said, how pop music has been written about, but very rarely by musicologists, by people who break the music down into it, the actual notes and rhythms of the piece the way you would with a piece of classical music. And there have been challenges on that front and then you kind of talk about why that is like how is notation limited in its power to assess or to appreciate or to kind of grok a musical moment you talk about your own efforts to break down a particular line in um was it coltrane a Thelonious Monk Milt Jackson track. Right. So it was just kind of this flurry of notes and you broke it down into all the individual notes But then the breakdown you did when you were writing this piece and the breakdown you'd originally done back when you were working on this piece years ago were slightly different. And it's really hard to try to see how this flurry of notes, this gesture in the jazz piece can actually be analyzed with the traditional tools without losing something of what's going on in the music. So it's a classic Platonism thing, right? Where if you translate these powerful affective moments and music into clear conceptual notation you're getting something but you're also losing something so so we'll expand on that that's a really basic summary of that but then you talk about how the way i read it was there's a tendency then to say notation is useless because it's always abstracting the concrete it's turning the concrete into abstraction and therefore 
you lose any sense of affective engagement or anything of what the music was concretely doing in the moment. Yeah, or sensuous immediacy. Sensuous immediacy, right. But then you were saying, but it's not just that, because the conceptual work of analyzing a piece of music using notation actually allows you to see things in the music that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise. For example, the generative force of a particular... Something I call a generative motif in a analysis of a Beethoven sonata. Right. So you pick up on this little pattern in the music that you can only see once you're breaking it down with notation. And then all of a sudden you see how that little pattern is operative through the whole piece. It's kind of shaping it all. And on multiple levels. On multiple levels. And you wouldn't be able to do that without notation. It would all happen below the threshold of consciousness. It'd still be there. Or would it? Yeah, be that's there? an interesting question too, yeah. And you talk about that too. In what sense is that pattern real? And that's really interesting. And then finally, you talk about when it comes to pop music especially, but I, I guess we both agree that it ultimately applies to all forms of music or all phenomena, period. There is something that can't be an analyzed through conceptual analysis. And this is where the role of the critic comes in. The person who uses prose, symbols, metaphors, analogies in order to capture that aspect of a, a work of art or whatever that can't be translated into clear concepts. So the example you work on is a critical essay that compares, he's a Hawkins, is that it? I'm not familiar with. Oh, yeah. Coleman Hawkins. Coleman Hawkins. Yeah. Great tenor saxophone player from the old school. Right. Comparing his style at a particular time to the wing beats of a large bird. And so from a classical analytic perspective, a musicologist might say, well, that makes no sense. There's nothing in there. It's a purely subjective idea. I mean, what the hell? A large bird beating its wings. It might you know, we might imagine that's like something, but in fact... Well, you, or you might imagine it, but why would I imagine it? Why would I imagine that's it? Just, that's just a fancy of yours. But you make an argument that there's something going on there too. And I'll just leave it at that. And, and in the last bit, the air guitar bit, I make a final turn where I'm sort of saying, like, really, what we're talking about here is empathy. Right. And that's what's really at stake. And that's kind of where I want to end up talking about today. Although I feel like we probably have a few steps to go through to get there. Yes. But... Ultimately, it has to do with a more overarching notion I have that, you know, something that bothers me about the conduct of the professional academic humanities is how often we treat empathy either as a kind of sentimental fiction that we project onto a cold, meaningless world in order to make ourselves feel better, or at the very least as something that maybe we can cultivate in our private lives, but it lies outside the province of hard-edged critical reason, mm. that it belongs to a domain of emotions that need not detain us in academia. And I have a big problem with these different ways of sidelining both human emotion generally and empathy in particular. So do I, but not for the reasons some people might think. I decry that too, but not because I think that it's important to take care of people's feelings and to be empathetic for its own sake, but because I believe there's a kind of objectivity, quote unquote, in the practice of empathy as expressed in art and also in a form of art criticism that relies on metaphor and appealing to the reader to feel something. 
there's a kind of objectivity in there that's become occluded today. That's kind of hard to understand, to even accept as part of reality. It's about blurring the line between the subjective and the objective, letting both notation become more subjectively powerful, showing how analysis works into affect and feeling. And also at the same time, you're saying that what is put down as merely subjective actually actually has objective power. There's actually something going on there yeah, that's, absolutely. That's, that we should pay attention to. So it's not just an appeal to... Um, Be nicer. To, it's not just that. No. Yeah. There's a real purpose. There's a real reason why we need to value empathy in criticism. Yeah. So let's talk about notation to begin with. Yeah. Tell me how notation developed very briefly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and what it all means, what it boils down to. What do we mean when we talk about musical notation? Well, one thing I say in the piece is that if you were raised in a culture of music literacy, you just take notation for granted. Just like if you're raised as a, you know, a literate person, like you know how to read or write and, you know, you learn to read and write quite early in life as most of us did, then you don't think too much about reading and writing as opposed to something else. It just seems like the natural condition of things. Uh, and so it takes a little bit of an exercise of imagination, even to think about notation. Like, why does notation exist? I mean, like everything else, notation has a history. The origins of the specific kind of like staff notation that we use in Western music, that comes from... Oh, can I, can I take a guess? Because I think I know. Sure. It comes from the monks, right? Medieval monks? Yes. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Okay, go on. Why would medieval monks want to develop such a technology, if you had to guess? So that the songs sound the same everywhere? Exactly. Standardization. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's, it's a magical idea, right? How so? Well, I believe that the songs had to sound the same from one monastery to another because the melodies were chosen for a reason. And yeah. the connection between the lyric or the words and the, the melody was important. And uh, mm -hmm. it, it was important to sing it this way. In order yeah. to get the effect you wanted. That would be one reason to do it. Actually, I'm not a specialist in chant at all. And so I don't want to uh, pretend greater knowledge than I actually have. But I wouldn't be surprised if that were one aspect of it. And another much more down-to-earth reason would be that standardization is a function of political power. You have a universal Catholic church establishing an orthodoxy, you know, getting everybody on the same page. It's going to matter not only that people are avoiding heresies and so on, but also that people are going to be avoiding wrong notes. Uh, there's just generally going to be an orientation to uniformity, which this gets us somewhat far afield. But I wonder if it is in the old church that we see the first stirrings of the kind of rationalism of capital, of oh, corporations. Yeah. Absolutely, you know, yeah. The idea like a Big Mac has to taste the same in Singapore and in Butte, Montana. Yeah. Like, you I mean, know, that, that, sort of, that sort of logic. I wonder if, that's, if that starts with the church. I think it does. I mean, I'm not an expert in anything. So everything I say is just my own <laughs> conjectures. <laughs> but I would conjecture that the concept of a corporation, which includes the word corpus, body, ultimately can find its origin in the church, the body of Christ, Corpus Christi, right? Yeah. So the church is a, a body and it's one organism. The idea of the corporation, which is originally an idea that, I mean, the corporation is obviously an invention of, of Western civilization, 
around the end of the Middle Ages, where they would form an entity. It's kind of an egregore, really. You, you yeah. create a body, uh, a being, an entity, which is the corporation. That's why it's called that, that then has its own agency and autonomy that somehow transcends the autonomy of all the people who've invested in it and who own it. So, so McDonald's is selling Jesus in the end. Yes, that's what we're trying to say. <laughs> okay. That really is the point that I try to make in my article. So sorry to, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Actually, I'm getting a little bit away from some of the thinking that I do in this article, and I'm just thinking out loud here. This idea of uniformity, of establishing a standard that stands over every particular instance of a performance, like this particular Big Mac versus the idea of the Big Mac, that idea emerging as it does into Western music through notation and through the particular administrative requirements of the Catholic Church, introduces a particular notion of authorship, a kind of metaphysics of authorship, an authorial, I don't know, authority, I guess. Mm -hmm. Because you think about what music is. We're so used to the idea that music can be something that a composer creates, I'm talking particularly about classical music, but you can find versions of this in jazz and pop and other streams of Western music as well. But just talking about classical music, we're very used to the idea that there's a composer who writes a piece of music, gives it to performers to play, and then an audience is listening to those performers play it. And so there's a multiple levels of mediation going on. But the idea is that the composer is sort of the boss, that even if the composer is long dead, it's the performer's job to realize composer's intent insofar as that can be defined, or at least to play music in line with what is known of what's appropriate to the style, so what the composer might reasonably have expected in his or her own lifetime. But this idea that there's an authority of authorship that stands over every particular instance, that's not universal throughout the world. No. There's a way of thinking of music that every instance of music is an original. Right. Every instance of music is just like, I'm playing something and you're listening to it. Right. And what I'm playing right here, right now, what's hitting your ear holes is the music and there's nothing standing over that. Right. You say like, well, where's the music coming from? Well, I'm making it. Who are you responsible to? I mean, maybe I'm responsible in some larger sense to the tribe or to the traditions of that tribe or whatever. But this idea of standardization, it adds the little word of. Right. So performance isn't just performance intransitively. We talk about the performance of, of right. something. Hence the Platonism of, of Western music. Um, yeah. That of which the performance is can't manifest directly it can only be performed but it always exists as a kind of form so right. i'm performing a gregorian chant but the gregorian chant exists somehow in this authority in this formal sense and you can only approximate it in your actual performance yeah. it, it kind of exists in an ideal sense is that what you're saying that's right and the notation incarnates not incarnates but the notation that's not a bad word for it yeah but it, it doesn't Karn. It doesn't it become... Realize, it realizes an idea. It re yeah, exactly. But if you think about this, okay, I've already talked about a chain of mediation. We start with the audience, which is sitting there listening to some performers, and the performers are mediating the idea that comes from the composer. But the chain of mediations doesn't end there, because ultimately, where does the composer get the idea? Right. The idea ultimately is conceived as something that the composer 
instantiates that the composer embodies, the composer incarnates, or whatever, uh, that the composer realizes. But the idea, to some extent, is even separate from the composer. Because, I mean, Ferruccio Bassoni pointed out that anytime you set pen to paper, you say, like, oh, I have a musical idea. The moment you start trying to write it down, you're like, well, the mere act of writing it down means I have to choose a key. Right. I have to decide what the meter is going to be. I have to decide what instruments are going to play. I have to decide a whole bunch of things. And the idea compels decisions on the part of the writer. But the idea, to some extent, is sort of telling the composer what to do. It, the idea ultimately feels like it's something that stands over even the composer. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. No, I was, and I just, no I was just going to expand on that. I, it's true. It's the old uh, Michelangelo quote. You know, the statue's locked in the marble. The statue's already present somehow. And the artist's job is to channel something. Right. And and that developed and evolved into the romantic idea of the genius, which is really just kind of a placeholder term we use to not to have to think about where the idea comes from and how it ends up on the page or in the symphony or whatever. It's a mystery. But always, you're right, like throughout the Western tradition, there's this assumption that the idea is separate from the thing that the the thing manifests an idea but the idea somehow exists and maybe that has its root partially in this idea of notation and specifically religious notation and religious chants but we also can't forget that the chants the gregorian chants were subordinated to a, a larger performance which is liturgy right the, right. the, the whole mass had to be performed in a specific way. The chants, the instruments, the order of things, how the Eucharist is done to this day. If the priest screws up the Eucharist, it doesn't work. Yeah. In that sense, it's literally a kind of classic style magic spell. It needs to be done in this order with these words. Yeah, or it doesn't work. Exactly. So there's this um, mystical version of the liturgy or the music somewhere. Uh-huh. And we humans have to try to manifested in the world and um it's so weird to think though getting back to big max that there's also this completely despiritualized aspect of the same thing the idea that there's a property intellectual property which transcends the realized like having the the recipe for the secret sauce and oh yeah Mac. it's so funny because you're right mcdonald's is a perfectly despiritualized entity but it's a hyper-religious entity in that sense. So it's like religion without spirit. <laughs> That's what you get. You get Walmart and Big Mac, you know? It's not. It's still religion. It's weird to think of these enormous structures, which, to get back to what I was saying before, it's just sort of like when you grow up with them, it takes a real exercise of imagination uh, to get outside of them, to even see that they're structures at all, rather than just being like the very ground under your feet, just reality. of music in my life i played in bands and stuff i never learned how to read music and that's not exceptional i mean i think <laughs> a lot of we you know yeah. teenage rockers would not bother um 
I, I can imagine how if you grew up with this, you start to think of as, as notation coming in a sense before music, just like you think yeah, of letters right. coming before words, right? Right, <laughs> um, exactly. And so this was a problem when musicologists started interesting themselves in popular music. I mean, late to the party, and this is something I say right on the first page of my essay, musicologists, people who are trained in these more formal notation-based methods of analysis, only started writing about popular music very much in the 1990s. And at that point, the sociologists and American studies people and literary people and so on had already been at it for ages, since the 70s. And so, you know, when we relate to the parties, it's sort of like, okay, so what do we do with this music? And the first generation of musicological scholarship on pop music, a lot of it was really just trying to study pop music the way we'd already, always already written about Mozart and Beethoven and so on. And so you ended up with a lot of guys who played rock guitar when they were in graduate school and then wrote their essays on medieval chansons and Renaissance motets and had worked their way up to tenure. And now they get to do something fun. And then they wanted to write about rock and roll. They almost invariably ended up writing about like Yes or Emerson, Lake and Palmer, like this kind of like symphonic rock or art rock that tried to emulate those kind of classical structures. Because if you want to write about rock, you know, sort of like if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. Or actually, if all you have is a hammer, you go looking for things that sort of look like nails, right? So you're going to look for music that looks like notated music and that will repay the kind of analytical techniques that were developed for notated music. And it's funny because a lot of these prog bands in the 70s actually used notations. The musicians were actually classically trained and able to to write parts down if I remember correctly. So so in a way, it's a cop-out. They're not really... <laughs> yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, I'm generalizing somewhat because there are also people like Susan McClary, for instance, wanting to write about Madonna early on. And basically, the consensus approach from the 90s onwards has been to take over a lot of the categories of thought from cultural studies, in particular the philosopher Theodore Adorno, and various other kind of cultural theorists who could be repurposed for musical analysis of one sort and another. Like something I'm seeing a lot of right now, Deleuze and Guattari are really hot in music, theoretical music analytical circles. And so people are trying to find ways of analyzing pieces of classical music using Deleuze and Guattari in terms, but kind of refitting those to work with notated styles of analysis. This is a style of work that got its start back in the 90s with this original moment of people trying to grope their way to an adequate way of dealing with popular music because the the problem is, okay, we've been talking about classical music as having a certain set of metaphysical assumptions that come from the mere fact that it's always been notated. Well, your experience in high school being a rocker dude playing in a band and never bothering to read music, that's not unusual. In fact, I would say that is, it would be more unusual if you had decided to read music. I think a lot of people decide not to read music partly because it's not really necessary. This is a music that didn't grow up in notated space. But also, I think there's even a sense that notation is beside the point. Or like if you were to learn notation, you might lose something valuable. Right. No, there was definitely that. Yeah. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Uh, When I was growing up as a teenager, so I started playing the drums when I was 13, 
played in a bunch of bands into my early 20s and then ended up playing again in my early 30s. Not only was I playing in bands, I was also writing the songs and kind of leading the bands I was I was in. I had one band in the, the 90s, early 90s called the Rainy Day Prophets. And uh, we became like a local band, kind of local go-to band. And so... I was interested in songwriting. I was interested in, it was a, it was really proggy. We had long instrumental sections that were really complex and crazy. The guitarist in our band did read music and I had a lot of respect for that. My brother at the time, who is now a professional musician who obviously reads music and writes music, at the time was getting interested in music on that level. But for many years, he was just playing the bass Everybody called him the bass ninja because he was so fucking good. Like he just has the chops. Like he's he's amazing. But we did it without writing music, and we had this feeling, this sense that to learn how to read music would somehow corrupt the purity of our expression. And we'd always yeah. cite Paul McCartney as our god. You see, he he wrote a an, an opera, and he'd never learned how to read music. And there was that sense. And I think I think there are two traditions. I think that obviously rock and jazz and the blues, all these evolved out of a kind of confluence of different traditions, but mainly out of a kind of folk tradition. You know, like if you go back to 19th century Ireland, the village fiddler probably didn't know how to read music. You just learned the songs and you passed them on. And I think that popular music kind of evolved from that, whereas classical music comes from a more priestly caste right L- literally originally uh, well we're talking about a we're talking about a tradition that's more than a thousand exactly. years old and so it's sort of like it's coming from a bunch of different directions but you can talk for the first i mean at least well into the baroque you can talk about basically two centers of authority the church on the one hand and the right. courts but the courts the retain the structure of a kind of priestly in the brahmin sense yeah. of the term like it's it's an upper yeah. class thing it's an educated class exactly and then you have and then in the 20th century there's this collapse of those traditional boundaries and all of a sudden music all ends up in the same kind of cultural pool (laughs) it's it's all on spotify music in high school so if you're a high school kid you go well do i go into the music i went to an arts high school so my choice was do i go into the music program and become one of those nerds that plays with the drums on the in the big band or do i like retain my street cred and teach myself and just bang on those motherfuckers like I don't know what I'm doing, but eventually, you know, I'll be able to pull off a Neil Peart solo or uh, I'll play like John Bonham and, right. and everybody will realize that I was right all along. You know, there's kind of this weird <laughs> thing going on in high <laughs> yeah. school, at least at that time in high school students. So, yeah. But but actually what you're talking about speaks to something, that distinction that I make in this essay that we're talking about. I take over Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht's terms, presence, culture, and meaning culture. Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht, or as our friend Graham referred to him, the notorious H-U-G. He's a German literary theorist and philosopher who worked, I think maybe still works at Stanford. Very nice fellow. I got to go out for a beer with him once. Uh, He wrote a book that was very influential on me called The Production of Presence, What Meaning Cannot Convey. And in it, he creates this distinction between like meaning cultures and presence cultures. And classical music, as we've been describing it, is a perfect example of a meaning culture where we have 
a notated system that allows us to separate the meaning of a piece of music from its utterance, from the wiggling air molecules, the, the, the event whereby wiggling air molecules hit a specific eardrum in a specific ear canal. This separation we've been talking about between those moments, those occasions of music making, and what the music can be said to mean, that's a hallmark of meaning cultures. I mean, any culture of alphabetic literacy, or any literate culture at all, alphabetic or not, is going to be a meaning culture, an idea that meaning is separable from the occasion. And so, I mean, just think about it. Like, uh, I write about this in my book as well, and dig, sound and music and hip culture. There's an example I use there. You think about like walking along the street and suddenly, bam, there's a, there's a car accident. And in that moment, you know, you feel this adrenal burst of fear and excitement. You, your heart starts pounding and, you know, maybe your hair stands on end. You have a, like a physical response. You smell the hot metal as one of the cars bursts into flame. I'm imagining something very dramatic. Uh, you hear the screams of the injured and panicked onlookers or whatever. I'm imagining a very dramatic situation that has never in fact happened to me, but... You know, this is entertainment, right? We're in the entertainment right, business here. Show business. So, uh, so I, sorry, I'm just amusing myself over here. <laughs> just imagining so, like, further details of the accident. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to keep. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> half an hour later, <laughs> there's this woman with a poodle, and she's. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so like. All of these ha things happen in the moment, and in the moment, say you're a Buddhist monk and you're just like totally attentive to every moment of experience, you would notice these as sudden intensifications within a kind of a blurred generality of experience. Things are constantly coming in, right? But then like car accident, there's a sudden intensification of experience. And then what happens is that that intensification, certain things stand out right? We can kind of think of that as an abstraction already from experience. Experience just is what it is, this kind of constant flow. But then when we start picking and choosing and pulling things out of the experience, well, then already we're moving away from that fundamental primary tactile experience towards something else. Then the police come and they want to take statements from all the witnesses. And they're not interested in how you felt at that moment. They're interested in knowing the facts of the case so they can determine who's at fault. And so they're going to ask you specific questions. That process of abstracting, of pulling out certain details from this like general wash of experience, that abstraction continues further and we're picking and choosing the things that are important because now there's a, a judicial and mm. a social, a legal context, mm -hmm. right? And then now your experience has been written down and now that becomes exhibit A in some future court case and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so what's happened is that we've moved from this primary presence of the world to our senses a way to something much more extract, which is the meaning that we've assigned to those right, experiences. Right. And the meaning uh, that we've assigned to them is to some extent determined by the way that words are used in our society as means of recording ideas, recording things, for example, for judicial proceedings. And in a meaning culture, uh, there's a, something that pop metaphysicians like Robert Anton Wilson liked to say, I think it's Alfred Kozybski who originally said this, the map is not the territory, right? And what that line means is don't confuse your representation of the real for the real itself. Right. And in a meaning culture, we do this all the time. 
you say, what was your actual experience of this vehicular collision? You feel like what actually happened is what's in those police reports. Your experience of it, your subjective feeling, the fact that you were scared or appalled or whatever is a fact that a clever lawyer can use to dispute your account, but like that's of no interest to anybody except maybe your your spouse when you come home right. and she wants to make sure you're okay. And so little bit by little bit in a meaning culture, we can move away from the territory, from the basic fundamental presence of things to an abstraction, the meaning that we assign to it as a culture and as individuals. And we very often will confuse the one for the other. We think that the meanings we come up for things actually are the things, you know, that the meanings that we have for reality, that's what reality is. Sorry, I'm going on at great detail to make a fairly basic distinction that I think Gumbrecht is making, and he's trying to get away from the educated habit of thinking that whatever it is we can say about a work of art is what the work of art is. Well, sorry, can you unpack that a little bit? What is he saying? He's saying that Whatever you can say about it is what it is? Is that what you said? No, 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 no. It, almost exactly the opposite. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay. I when he, when sure he's that. making this distinction between meaning cultures and presence cultures, academia is the ultimate meaning culture, mm-hmm. right? There's a way that we have of approaching, I'm going to stick to music, you know, say a Beethoven sonata, like the example I use at length in my essay is Beethoven's F minor sonata, opus 57, the Appassionata. It's a really well-known piece of Beethoven's. Now, if I was just a plain old music lover, not an academic at all, what's important to me about that piece? Well, maybe what's important to me is that I listened to that piece a lot when I was mourning the death of my beloved mother. Mm-hmm. Or maybe what's important to me about that music is I went to a concert and I sat there and I heard the opening notes and I could feel the hairs on my arm prickling. Okay, none of that shit counts for anything in the classroom. Right. Like, how am I going to put that in an analysis of the Beethoven sonata? Like, yes, and so the point I wish to make is that this piece makes me feel all tingly. Like, that's not how the game is played. If I say that this music is important to me because I associate it with the death of my mother, which I don't because my mother is very much alive and probably listening to this episode. But if I did, I mean, why would any other academic care about this? I'm not saying anything about this music that conveys anything to you. The stuff I'm talking about isn't, doesn't pertain to some kind of intersubjective meaning that we share. Like maybe the music signifies my mourning for my dead parent. That's to me, but it doesn't to you. You maybe have a totally different association with the piece. And so in academia, what we're interested in saying is not what is the way this music hits me, but what does the music mean in itself? What are the abstractable meanings that we can pull out of this piece? And in order to do that, we have notation. And notation allows us to do this really effectively. I can use notation to get myself out of the picture entirely. And this is something I give an example of at length. Like, okay, so let's say I do an analysis of a Beethoven sonata and I have a whole paragraph where I do an example of a professional style analysis, which I'm not going to read out because it would be an abuse to the patience of almost everybody listening. Uh, it would be almost completely incomprehensible. I'm curious, though, uh, very briefly, what you made of that. Of the, uh, the little part where you analyze the Beethoven thing? 
Yeah, yeah, where I go full analytical. I I enjoyed it, uh, but I did read like uh, particle physics to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> particle physicists of the humanities is something you once said about music analysts. But I like the way it looks on the page. This kind of writing is the sort of thing that gives musicology an unsavory reputation among, especially the sort of culture theoretical types who have an allergy to what they call formalism anyway and will accuse us of doubtless harboring all kinds of regressive bourgeois tendencies, uh, but also of trying to change the subject, trying to get away from what the music is and burying it under yeah. a mountain of music technical obscurity, Rendering it abstract, completely abstract, yeah. Right, and I say that, you know, whereas we, doing this kind of analysis, will say, no, but there's literally no way I could make the point that I want to make about this music without using yeah. notation. It's just like in science, you need math to express ideas. Yes. Right, yeah. precisely. And so and that's where the argument generally ends. Now, I wanted to point out that in this, both sides miss a certain kind of magical operation that's going on. In this kind of highly technical music analytical language allows us to do something that happens in meaning culture, which is it allows us to throw our voice. The I as an analyst, I can throw my voice and I can make myself disappear. The way I explain that, I imagine like a freshman paper and anybody who has taught freshman music analysis classes has read plenty of papers like this. A student writing, okay, this next part feels like an epic rage fest, like this argument I had with my mom where she ended up smashing dinner plates on the floor. Each time I hear the bass go da-da-da-da, I think, crash, another plate hits the linoleum. And all the while, it's like I'm hearing this frantic old-time silent movie music, the kind they play when a lady gets tied to the train tracks. And I just made that up, but that's an example of a kind of thing that you do sometimes get. And my response to this is this. This description might make you smile, but you'd probably still suggest the student revise it as it puts all the detail in terms of her personal experience. Who cares about your argument with your mom? That's just subjective stuff. I wasn't there. I can't know what that was like. Tell me about things that are intersubjective, things that pertain to the music itself and not to anyone in particular. So the student revises his passage and writes something like this. In measures 130 to 134, the V for victory D flat C gesture from measure 10 is hammered over a lashing 16th note right hand tremolo. That's a quote, by the way, from the long passage of particle physics that I'd written in the previous page. And my commentary on this is what, what has happened is that the student has gone from saying, in this place I hear X, to in measures 130 to 134, X takes place. Whereas before she's resorted to a colorful analogy that resonates with her own experience, for example, the right-hand tremolo sounding like some silent movie music she's heard, now the student points to something with an independent and objective existence in the score. We've taught her to perform a magic trick. She's learned to throw her voice. She's taken her personal experience and projected it into the score. So doing, she has disappeared. And this is a very typical thing that happens in what Gumbrecht calls meaning cultures. And the danger is that we will mistake map for territory, that in recasting arguments or, or statements about how music works, what's happening in a piece of music, in terms that allow us to put it in a kind of, on an intersubjective footing, 
right? Where it's not dependent upon my own individual point of view, that you can see it just as easily as I can see it. So I project it as something that happens in the music itself and not like in my mm -hmm. ear holes, right? The problem comes when we say then, well, that's what the music is. It's the lashing 16th note tremolo and the D flat C gesture in the bass. But to say that is to omit all of the things that music means to people almost all the time. For most people, what music means, the reason music means anything, the reason it's important to them is because it hits them at particular places and times, like the death of a parent or at their wedding or whatever, right? And from a point of view of people outside the meaning culture of academia, this systematic erasure of what music means in all of those lived experiences, those moments of encounter, the systematic erasure of that is insane. Yeah. It's nuts. And in my book, Dig, I say that, you know, that kind of me meaning, or the meaning of presence, the, the way music hits us at particular moments, is 90% of the meaning of music, but it's like the dark matter of the musical universe. We know it's there. It's the overwhelming majority of everything that exists, but it's invisible to us. We don't have techniques to, to talk about it. This is not a, a problem that's endemic to music only, but to but yeah, I know conceptual means. thinking in general. I mean, a little bit of introspection will show you that your concepts are never exactly right. The concepts you use, not only to communicate with others, but to think to yourself, are always good enough. You'll never encounter an occasion where a particular concept fits perfectly because the granularity of the real is infinite. So, so the, right. the variables are infinite. Context is infinitely expansive. You know, it's the old Heraclitus. You never step through the same river twice. Having said that, there's a tendency then to say, so the map's not the territory, therefore the map is kind of worthless. Right. And it exists on a different plane, and the territory is the real thing, and we need to embrace pure presence. And that's, and by the way, I'm sorry I'm interrupting you, but that ties back to like, why then do you have all these rockers who refuse to learn to read right. music? And that is buying into a certain myth of right, presence. Right, exactly. So... And so that's like, in as much as there's this mistaken view of a meaning culture, which is to say the map is the territory, the equivalent mistake over in presence culture is to be like, fuck maps, presence is everything. Whereas in fact, maps are territory as well. Uh, the concepts yeah. we come up with have an affective dimension that keeps them in the world. They're still things we interact with. So that's the beauty of conceptual thinking. And this is Deleuze's idea of philosophy. For Deleuze, philosophy is the creation of concepts. But it's not the creation of concepts understood in a paradigm where concepts would be separate from the world, somehow formal and outside or transcendent. Concepts are always mixed up in the world. I'll go back to your example of the car accident. I'll connect it to an incident in the history of pop music, actually, uh, something that happened to Jim Morrison whom I still think is really underrated, and he'll have his moment. He'll break on through to the other side, well, is what he you're did. saying. So now we need to, with him. Um, so Jim Morrison... Breaking on through to the other side of critical <laughs> respectability. 
How's that for the most pretentious possible title that's, that's pre- of a hypothetical that, academic That'll be article. the title of our episode. Oh, there so, you go. When Jim Morrison was young, he was on a road trip with his family, and they drove by a car accident, like a major car accident. A truck had hit. Uh, I, I don't remember the details of it, but there were bodies everywhere and stuff. And one of the vehicles had been occupied or whatever by Native Americans. This is the story Jim Morrison told, that someone was cradling an old Native American man who was dying, and the man made eye contact with Jim Morrison, and his soul passed into Jim Morrison. So Jim Morrison thought he was somehow connected to the soul of this particular shaman. Okay, so we can... There's all kinds of problematic things here, I understand. I'm just using it as an example. When you see an accident... Remember I mentioned earlier the lady with the poodle screaming... You know, when I've seen traumatic things in my life, there's always some weird detail that stuck out to me that wasn't part of the big picture. It would be of no interest to a lawyer or police officer asking me questions about the incident. But that is where I found meaning in that. It's not a meaning I I can interpret clearly so that I know what that meaning is. But I sensed in that moment of presence, already meanings were expressing themselves to me, but they're not meanings that are of any type of judicial value or any type of like objective value. They're meanings to me. And then the question is, well, how do I translate this meaning to me into a meaning in itself? And that's where the, the two cultures meet. You're always in a presence culture and you're always in a meaning culture at the personal level. Yeah. The two are always interacting. So presence always occurs with meaning. And meaning always requires presence. Obviously, that's the case. You can't have a map without a territory. But I would also argue you can't have a territory without a map. Hmm. And in fact, I think part of what Deleuze and Guattari mean by territorialization is map making. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Because there's the what they call chaos, which is reality. And then the territory is always in, ironically, in Deleuze and Guattari, the territory is always a kind of map. So... You extract certain elements of the chaos, you constellate them into a kind of unit, and that becomes the territory. I think it's important to avoid, and I think that's partially what you're doing in this essay, is trying to compromise this easy dualism that sets in between map and territory. So although it's true that I disappear when I transform a piece of music into a bunch of notes on a page and a score or whatever, when I do that it also creates a new territory. So you bring up the example that Beethoven has all these patterns in his music, but he wouldn't have been able to create music like that without notation. He existed in a world where notation existed and he used notation to create music that then creates presence, right? So what is notation? What is map making? What is conceptual thinking? It's a way of engaging with real presence in order to bring new presences, to make new presences possible. So it's not a matter of denigrating one and, you know, lifting the other up. It's a matter of realizing that these two frequencies are always at play in any moment, that you're always on a map and in a territory at the same time. Yep. So the question then becomes, how do you take that weird, ineffable conceptual meaning you get? For example, Jim Morrison's moment with that old man who was just one detail of a traumatic kind of scene. 
How do you translate that into a meaning that is expressible objectively? That's not just this piece of music reminding me of the time my mom was smashing dishes against the floor. It's not just that. Right. If I say my mom, but if I write something like this particular line in in the piece is like a woman smashing dishes against a floor. It's already you're moving yeah. into a more archetypal realm outside of my own experience into experience itself because everybody knows a woman, everybody knows some dishes and everybody knows what floors are. So you start, that's yeah. where poetics come in. It's when you separate it from my right. own personal experience, you translate your own personal experience into some kind of archetypal experience and then communication right. becomes possible without leaving the realm of presence altogether. You're allowing for a weird mixture of meaning and presence that I think is the kind of home territory of someone like a, a great literary critic or a great musical critic where they, they use analogy and metaphor in order to convey subjective meanings that attain to the objective. what you were just saying about, you know, plates exist, linoleum exists, angry mothers exist in an intersubjective realm. And so I can use that figure as a way to communicate something that's in the music that perhaps can communicate to other people as well. And through the creation of an image, a narrative image or a poetic image, I can talk about music in ways that will communicate across our individual solitudes. This idea is very important to me, and that's ultimately where I go with this essay. Writing style, attention to style, the full range of tools that are open to the writer, narrative and image, metaphor, humor, you know, storytelling, like all of these things are at our disposal and they're all fair game. And we can use them to write a kind of scholarship that owes something to criticism without necessarily being criticism or being limited to just being criticism. But we can write scholarship that nevertheless uses an enhanced range of literary styles to communicate things that otherwise are incommunicable or very difficult to communicate, especially things that kind of are like the little fish that swim through the net of notation. You know, notation is great, but there's a lot of stuff that it can't do. An example I give is a particular moment in a Brian Eno track from the album Another Green World, Zawinul Lava. There's this one particular moment where you hear this like distant little sound way down in the mix. And that's like the most important, you were saying a moment ago in our hypothetical car crash scenario, it's the lady with the poodle who's screaming. That's the detail of some weird little thing that might be totally irrelevant a riff, to the yeah. police. Yeah, it's a right. rift. It might be totally irrelevant to the lawyers and the police, but it's the most important thing to you. You know, in listening to Zawinul Lava, I could notate the very minimal pitch structures on which that piece is based, but that to me is not the most salient thing about the music. The thing that really sticks out to me is that tiny little sound way in the background at about one minute and 13 seconds.
okay, I want to use the full range of writing technique and artistry to be able to get at those things, those, those little fish that swim through the net of notation, things that notation can't capture, but they're important all the same. I believe that it is to conceive of ourselves not only as scholars, but also artists, as both, that that is a really important taking it to the next level kind of thing that scholarship can do. I'm not under any illusions that that's going to happen on any large scale, but like some people do it. The example I give towards the end of this essay is Mitchell Morris at UCLA, who wrote a wonderful book, a beautiful book called The Persistence of Sentiment, where he is talking about pop records from the 70s that were like super popular, like Cher, Barry White, Barry Manilow, The Carpenters, like AM pop of the sort that like everybody listens to and nobody thinks is cool, unless they're being all like hipster ironic about it. Mitchell's book is just a beautiful series of meditations on these tracks where he is listening to them and through his remarkable abilities as a writer and also through his imagination, he's able to enter empathetically into subjectivities of, say, a suburban stay-at-home mom listening to the Carpenters on the radio. And he's able to say some really meaningful things about this music. And by virtue of his imagination, it is possible I'm not under any illusions that it's ever going to be very likely, but it's always possible. And basically the point of this essay is to say that itself can be a vector of analysis. Imagination and a kind of artistry of style, that can be our technique of analysis that lets us unlock things that otherwise would remain forever closed to us. We have come to believe, I think not without reason, that that sort of power, that literary power, is not teachable. I think that, in a sense, it isn't teachable, according to the dominant culture of our times. I mean, one of the reasons I sent my girls to a Steiner Waldorf school is because I do believe that the Waldorf system tends to develop the imagination poetically in a way that makes it very unique today. But it's a real mystery how writers get this capacity to do this, to transform the subjective into the objective. I think it was Melville who wrote, art is the objectification of feeling. There's nothing harder to do than to objectify a feeling, to turn a feeling into a force. There's a great book by E.M. Forrester, Aspects of the Novel, a classic how-to book <laughs> about uh, just the novel as an art form. And Forrester writes that in Dostoevsky, I'm quoting, the characters and situations always stand for more than themselves. Infinity attends them. Though they remain individuals, they expand to embrace it and summon it to embrace them. How do you bring the infinite into a moment of expression, a line, a, a phrase, a paragraph? It's the great mystery of writing. Yep. But it's at that level that the old distinction between science as a purely objective endeavor and art as a purely subjective endeavor crumbles. It just falls apart. There's an objectivity to true art that is every bit as, well, objective as the objectivity of science. And um, how does that work? Well, it's partially by transforming your mother into a mother. There's something going on there. When you take a purely anecdotal moment and you somehow transform it into something like an imaginal or archetypal moment, 
the risk is always very clear. When you do that, the danger is always that you'll come up with a cliche instead of a, a symbol. Or something solipsistic, that you'll end up on a metaphor or an image that is how you feel, but it just won't set up a corresponding emotion, a resonance in the heart of the person reading right. it. So an example that I have, and you mentioned it early on in this conversation, a great jazz critic who wrote for The New Yorker for many years, Whitney Baye, who had a famously purple style of prose. The only thing is he would write really fanciful, over-the-top descriptions of sounds, you know, the particular sonorous quality of Coleman Hawkins' tenor saxophone. And yet the weird thing is that he would go out on a limb and use these crazy metaphors to describe sounds, and it worked. And he's very different from other people who write in purple prose about music that nobody remembers and nobody gives a shit about because, you know, their images didn't work. Why did Whitney Baye's images work? I don't know. I'll give you the example that we're talking about. This is Whitney Baye's writing. Hawkins' early style was rough and aggressive. His tone tended to be harsh and bamboo-like, and he used a great many staccato, slap-tongue notes. But these mannerisms eventually vanished, and by the mid-30s, he had entered his second and most famous phase. His heavy vibrato suggested the wing beats of a big bird, and his tone halls hung with dark velvet and lit by huge fires. Listen to that again. Tone halls hung with dark velvet and lit by huge yeah. fires. That's so fucking abstract. That's so weird. First we were hearing about, you know, the wing beats of a big bird, and then tone halls hung with dark velvet and lit by huge fires. That's like a symbolist poem. It is, exactly, right? yeah, yeah. And... I can't tell you why that image works so beautifully. It just does. Yep, that's what he sounds like. There's a little moment of empathy. And it's those moments of empathy, moments where you feel a hand stretching out from one individual human solitude into your human solitude, where you can clasp hands with another subjectivity, where you can look out and see your glance returned. Those moments of empathy to me, that is as much as I feel like I can ever hope for from writing about yeah. art. That's what I live for. Yes, but how does it work? Why is it? What's the connection between Hawkins' style of that time and the wing beats of a large bird or those tone dark halls hung with velvet? That's what's interesting to me because... Um, Speaking of our own thing, there's one piece that I'm still working on, on and off, and I will finish it at some point. The Realist Sacrament piece, which you've read a draft of. Oh, yeah. What, it's making an argument, and this is where things are going to get a little weird. So in this example, I believe there is a real connection. I'm not talking about a subjective conceptual connection. I'm talking about a real connection, whether it was noticed by anyone or not, between the wing beats of a bird flying through that dark hall and that music. And the huge fires. And the huge fires and that music. Like a real connection. I would like to argue or propose the possibility that, and this is my own take on the platonic way of understanding things, that there is something to what magicians call the theory of correspondence. The gold of the sun and the gold of the mineral gold. It's not just that these two things exist contingently separately and then we draw the connection between the two. So we are required for that connection. Rather, I would like to argue something like 
the sun calls to directly to the gold and vice versa. That the connection is, we notice it because it's already there. That there's a kind of musical harmonics going on between things in the world and that art is, uh, well, Deleuze called art the science of the sensible. That art is a way of finding these connections. Establishing connections that really kind of um, nullify any clear distinction between meaning and presence. Because presence is always imbued already with meaning, and meaning is always requiring presence. And I'm not asking anybody to believe this, I'm just asking people to entertain this possibility that Hawkins playing at that moment, on some cosmic level, was actually connecting with all the tone-dark halls hung with velvet and huge fires, and the biggest fucking birds of prehistory flapping their wings. All these things were connected at that point in some real way that um, and these things are expressions of that that something. something. Um, but no, I wouldn't even say that because then we're going back into a platonic that there's something that's expressing itself in all these different ways. There's some kind of imminent connection between these things. So you're doing away with the idea of hypostasis, of projection, of any type of of emanation, the neoplatonic emanation of something ah. that takes these different forms. So that's where I would part with the correspondence theory, the classic magical thing. Um, so it's a horizontal rather than a vertical structure. There's nothing standing over it vertically exactly. on a higher level, projecting its rays down to our sublunary realm, and we find reflections of it in this mineral and that plant and so on. That's the classic kind of magical theory, but rather that the connections are, as it were, horizontal, or to use the favored Deleuzean word, rhizomatic. Rhizomatic, horizontal. It's a question of resonance rather than emanation. Nice. Nice. Things resonating with one another. Oh, I dig but, that. I dig that. But that, that, that doesn't mean I would reject the Neoplatonic idea of emanation because I do believe that certain things manifest through signs, right? So that's possible too. But I would argue that the source of those emanations are themselves still on the horizontal plane of the imminent. So, for example, I can buy Carl Jung's ideas, basically, of the archetypes, so long as we agree that the archetypes are also contingent and part of the same imminent plane. It's just that there are different levels of the imminent. There's no like absolutely transcendent level where things emanate down and then this sublunary contingent level where things manifest the archetypes. That the archetypes are also... Uh, well, there are small gears and big gears, right? Gods rise and fall. Like imminence doesn't mean materialist, you know? Imminence can include a lot of spiritual dimensions. And so certain things can manifest and refract on multiple levels in different ways, but it doesn't change. I think my intuition is that ultimately it's not so much about figuring out what uh, Hawkins solo, the dark hall, the fires and the bird all mean, trying to find some kind of abstract form behind all those things, but just realizing that these things resonate together to create a new constellation of meaning. I love what you're saying. And also you need to finish that goddamn article yeah. so I can read it. I, I, lo I love the version that I've read. Anyway, whatever, right. finish the goddamn thing. Um, we'll do an episode on it at that point. Yeah, we should. Oh, <laughs> totally. Um, to put what I've been talking about in terms kind of modified by what you just said, you know, then the job of scholarship and criticism, as I'm trying to outline it in this essay, and as I try to live it in my own life, is that you are a sensitive 
almost like a membrane, like the tympanum of an ear. You are a sensitive resonating surface registering these resonances between things in this uh, plane of imminence. That's so. That's such a good one. And there's a there's a line in um in the of, of the refrain chapter, which we sort of discussed in the hyperstitions episode, where Deleuze and Guattari write, "All history is the history of perception," mm. and I think that's what they're getting at. Interesting that a subject in their universe, a subject is a surface, a kind of surface that takes in exactly what you just said. A surface upon which meaning can inscribe itself, reveal itself, yeah. almost like a, a screen on which the world projects itself and then certain shapes come into being. We ourselves vibrate with the macrocosm. That's, I mean, it's an old magical idea. Yeah. Man, the microcosm is the surface upon which the macrocosm manifests itself. But I think that would apply to every parcel of the universe. Yeah. Everything is refracting with everything else. And if you want a beautiful illustration of a world that's like that, I would recommend reading the first chapter of Henry Bergson's Matter and Memory, which really paints a picture of reality that is something like that, huh. of uh, tiny parcels of meaning resonating with one another in a great cosmic tapestry that actually tapestry is not the right word, in a great cosmic symphony for which the only decent analogies have to be musical yeah. analogies. Yeah. yeah. And this brings us back to where we started I was saying that ultimately what's at stake in this essay is empathy, but not just empathy in the be nice to people sense, although I do think that we should be nice to people. I think if you're looking for a moral vocation for art, it could be, I'm not saying it is, but it could be that turning ourselves into a suitable membrane for registering these energies, these resonances, is something that also turns us into a vessel suitable for registering human energies. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.